All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And uh, I'm not going to make really any introductory comments before reading the text this morning. So the passage itself will be our prologue for today. So Matthew chapter 16, I'll begin reading in verse 13. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now in verse 13 that we just read, We're told where the events that were just described actually took place. That was in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And as always, the geographical locations that are given to us in the passages of Scripture that we read are material. They they mean something, and they're intended to communicate something to us. We we want the, the geographical backdrop to help us in our interpretation of the passage. Now, Caesarea Philippi was a place that is not too unlike modern-day America. It was a hotbed of pagan worship that was oriented around the false god that they called Pan. It was the god of, uh, of sort of like uh, the, the woodland areas, the, the god of the woods, and it was associated with fertility and fecundity and those sorts of things. But prior to being renamed Caesarea Philippi, this region was actually called Baal Hermon, meaning Lord of the Mountain, and it was one of the high places where pagan worship happened in the book of Judges. And so whether you want to look at it in the time of Christ or you want to look at it in the time of the Old Testament Judges, this is a place that is known for its pagan worship. This is a place that is known for its idolatry. It was Herod the Great who had built a temple in Caesarea Philippi that was actually for the worship of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. And so this is a place where you've got the Greek pantheon who's worshipped primarily Pan, but it's also a place now that has been also sort of carved out as a place where the emperor is worshipped. And during this period of time, if you're familiar with your Roman history, you'll know that there was a movement in the Roman Empire to begin a cult of emperor worship. That the emperor was beginning to say to his subjects, I'm divine and I should be rendered worship. I need to be added to the pantheon as a deity. And I should be offered worship as such. And Herod the Great actually built a temple for the worship of a Roman emperor in this place. And it was Herod's son, Philip, who then renamed the region to Caesarea Philippi. And the Caesarea part is for the Caesar. Because he wanted to demarcate that place all the more as a locale in which the emperor was regarded as divine and where he was to be worshipped. 
I bring up that bit of history about this place to make it clear that Jesus and his disciples are in enemy-occupied territory at this point. They are behind enemy lines in Caesarea Philippi. This is a pagan place that's sold out to the pagan pantheon of gods and is working toward the expansion of that pagan kingdom. Jesus, in contrast, has been preaching about the expansion and growth of God's kingdom all throughout Matthew's gospel, hasn't he? He's been talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. But now he and his disciples are standing in a place that does not acknowledge that kingdom or its king at all. They're in a place that's known for the worship of the state, Caesar worship, and the fertility god, Pan. These people's values were oriented around sex and state. I'll let you draw the parallels to the modern day on your own. (laughs) Now also in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples what people are saying about his identity. He says, who do the people say that I am? But the way that he asks the question is also in such a way as to make an identification all all, all on his own. Because the way he phrases the question, he says, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? So even as he's asking the question, who who do people say that I am, he's also answering the question that he's asking because he designates himself with the title Son of Man. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, what does that title mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of Man? Because he's identifying himself as the Son of Man. What's bound up in that title? Well, the title is used prominently in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is one of the places where this title is used. And in that chapter, Daniel receives a vision. And he sees, effectively, four kingdoms in that vision. Some of you will be familiar with Daniel chapter 7, others less so. It'll be something that you could certainly study out on your own after this morning's message. But the kingdoms, the four kingdoms uh, that that Daniel sees in the vision, are all apocalyptically described as beasts. All of the kingdoms are beasts in this vision. One is a lion with eagle's wings. Another is a bear. There's a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then there's a ten-horned beast with the eyes of a man. And all of us are thinking, uh, <laughs> that's very sci-fi. <laughs> that's very sci-fi. But Daniel tells us in chapter 7 that those beasts are four kings who are the heads of four kingdoms. The first beast is the Babylonian Empire. The second is the Medo-Persian Empire. The third is the Greek Empire. And the fourth is the Roman Empire, under which Jesus and his contemporaries were living at the time that Matthew chapter 16 occurred. Now, because I'm not preaching Daniel chapter 7 this morning, but I'm only using that passage to show us the significance of the title, Son of Man, I'm not going to support the assertion that those are, in fact, the identities of the four beasts. But one thing I will tell you is you'd be hard-pressed to find any commentator that does not identify those four kingdoms in the way that I just did. And so for the, the handful of you who may be thinking, I know that Wes has been into some of that uh, weird post-millennial partial preterist stuff. Is this one of those things that's sort of like he's out on a limb there? It, it's not. Pick up any commentary on the book of Daniel. They're going to make those same four identifications. Okay? It's not one of those things that I'm right about with just four other people. (laughs) That was a joke. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Right? So, So those are the four kingdoms. And note that, again, the fourth of those kingdoms that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7 is the Roman 
empire under which Jesus and his contemporaries are living. But here's our point in thinking about what this means for Jesus identifying himself as the Son of Man. Daniel's vision of these beast kingdoms climaxes with these lines. I'll read it for you. After we have all these kingdoms, here's the the climax of the vision after seeing these beastly kingdoms. It says this, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That gives us a glimpse into what it means to be the Son of Man. What Jesus means when he says that he is the Son of Man. There are all of these terrifyingly powerful kingdoms that dominated the world in their own times. Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, the Romans. Terrifying kingdoms, aggressive in the way that they expanded, leaving much destruction in their wake. That's why they're described in the Bible as being beasts. They were beastly and aggressive in their domination, even globally in the known world at the time. But Daniel's vision says that all of them, all of them will be made subservient to the Son of Man. All of them will come under His authority. The beasts once ruled the world, but Daniel's vision said that the day was coming when the Son of Man would be the one who ruled over the nations. That means that Son of Man means something like kingdom conqueror, dominion taker, or global sovereign. Those are the connotations that should be associated with that title. It's a title of conquest, rulership, and sovereignty, dominion. Jesus is the one who will establish a kingdom that swallows up and subsumes all of the other kingdoms of man, regardless of how powerful they may seem to be in their own time. Now, the reason that the title Son of Man means that is because the phrase literally means Son of Adam. We may think, um, why associate Son of Man with dominion and, and, and rulership? What, what, what does being the Son of Adam have to do with dominion? Well, just go back to Genesis and you'll know what Adam has to do with dominion. Because who was the first man who was originally given dominion over all of God's creation? Adam. Adam. But what did Adam do? Adam abdicated his authority. And he gave it over to whom? Satan. He gives that dominion over to Satan. Such that Jesus is the true son of Adam. Because he's the one who takes the dominion that was originally given to man back from Satan. And exercises it rightly in the world to rule. So when we hear Son of Man, we need to be thinking about the full dominion over creation that was given to Adam, that Adam gave away, that Jesus says, I'll take that back now, thank you. That's the Son of Man. Christ is the Son of Adam who takes back the dominion that was given to man. That to say that Jesus has given his disciples a powerful hint as to who he truly is in the way that he asks them who he is. Who do these people say that the Son of Man is? Trying to help make sure they get the right answer there. 
He is Daniel's dominion-taking son of man. That's who he is. But in verse 14, the disciples answer Jesus' question about who the people say he is. Some said that he's John the Baptist. There was, during this time, a lot of buzz. We saw it with Herod. There was some buzz in the atmosphere that maybe Jesus was a resurrected John the Baptist. And so some held to that position. They were like, I think, I think maybe John's back. I think maybe that's what's happening with this guy and his, and his miracles. Others said, maybe, maybe it's Elijah. They, they had this eschatological expectation from the book of Malachi that at some point there was going to be another Elijah. And they're thinking, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's who this guy is. Others said Jeremiah. And you could see why they might think Jeremiah because of the, the rebukes that are constantly coming out of Jesus' mouth that sound a little bit like the book of Jeremiah. We're thinking maybe it's Jeremiah. Certainly, though, the general consensus was that this guy must be a prophet who is sent from and speaks for God. And of course, there's truth in that assessment, isn't there? But it doesn't go quite far enough. Jesus does speak from and for God, but he is also himself divine. As Peter rightly identifies in verse 16, when Jesus personalizes the question, going from who do the people say that the Son of Man is, to the question that's more pointed, who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering for the group, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Christ is a term that literally means anointed one. And it's a pretty vague term, to be honest with you. Like if you're just reading through the Bible, the Old Testament in Hebrew, you're going to see it looks like there are lots of messiahs. It looks like there are lots of Christs. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah, which is a Hebrew word. And that's what anointed one actually translates from. Okay, so Messiah, anointed one, Christ, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. So when he says, you are the Christ, he's saying, you're the anointed one, you're the Messiah. But again, that's a vague term. Kings, priests, and prophets were all anointed into office. They were all messiahs. They were all anointed ones. They were all anointed with oil over their heads. The oil being a symbol of God's spirit and presence with those officers. That is to say that in Scripture, there have been many lowercase c Christs. There have been many lowercase m messiahs, but they were all leading up to the uppercase version that is standing in front of the disciples asking them the question. Jesus is the truly anointed one who was anointed into his office, not with the symbolic outpouring of oil, but with the actual descent of the spirit in the form of a dove under the affirming voice of the father from heaven. It's the ultimate anointing. Everybody else got oil that was symbolic of the Spirit. He actually has the Spirit descend from heaven upon him as he is commissioned into his office beginning his public ministry. That's because he's not a Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's not a Christ. He's the Christ. He's not one of Israel's king. He is the king of kings. That's the idea. Now, Peter sees and acknowledges this fact. He sees that while there have been Christs, it is the Christ who is standing in front of him now. As I said, Israel has had many anointed ones, many messiahs, many kings, priests, and prophets. And many of them did good things. 
Many of them were laudable. Many of them led helpful movements. Many of them unified the people. Many of them vanquished God's enemies. Many of them restored right worship to Israel. The difference, though, is none of it lasted. None of it lasted. None of it had any permanence. The dominion, the reforms, the rightly ordered worship was always fleeting. The victories were always reversed. You know this if you've read your Old Testament. (laughs) Seems like Israel's at a high point, Israel's at a low point. Israel's at a high point, Israel's at a low point. And many of their messiahs took them to those high points, but they couldn't keep them there. Their work was always fleeting and faltering. The people always descended back into lowly states again because while those leaders were Christ's, what the people needed was the Christ, who is also Daniel's dominion-taking son of man, whose work is permanent and irreversible. That's what they needed. And Peter says to Jesus, that's you. That's you. You're the one that we've actually needed all of these centuries. And Jesus replies to Peter, he says, Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah. Blessed are you. Now, notice what he didn't say. He he didn't say, wise are you, Peter. He didn't say, smart are you, Peter. He didn't say, insightful and studious are you, Peter. No, he says, blessed. Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You see, we don't come to an understanding of who Christ is by means of logical deduction or human reasoning. That's not how anybody becomes a follower, a lover, a truster of Christ. Our knowledge of and belief in Christ is actually a divine gift given to those whom God chooses. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, but I don't want you to think about it from the standpoint of the debate between Calvinists and Arminians to the degree that you're aware of that debate. I want you to think about it rather from the standpoint of your intimacy with God. Think about it from that vantage point. Jesus says that to acknowledge and embrace Him as the Christ, as God's anointed king, priest, and prophet, to acknowledge and embrace Christ in that way is to be uniquely blessed, specially blessed by God personally blessed by God. That means that every time you affirm faith in Jesus as the Christ, you should be thinking, how wonderfully present is my God to me? How near is he even now empowering that confession of faith? He's specially, personally, and intimately condescended to you to give you that revelation and to draw you to himself. How wonderfully kind and near is our God. It wasn't, it wasn't cold intellectualizing that awakened your soul and brought you to a place where you saw and beheld the beauty of Jesus and said, I want to give my life to this guy. Right? That wasn't an intellectual or academic exercise because you listened to a good apologetics lecture. It wasn't simply your childhood indoctrination. Dad said it and 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 said it. And so finally, I just thought maybe, maybe this is true saying those may have been means that God used along the way, but ultimately, it was the God of the universe, so warm and tender toward you that he came to you personally and he revealed himself. That's what Jesus says to Peter. How wonderfully kind is my Father in heaven because the fact that you just identified what you identified tells me 
that God has come to you in a special and unique way and he has drawn you to himself. You see, you and I don't believe in or trust Jesus as the Christ because we're morally or intellectually superior to the people who don't. That's not how that happened. It happened because God was uniquely kind to you and to me. We believe in and trust Jesus as the Christ because we've received an unimaginably undeserved gift of faith from our Father in heaven. And we should be grateful all the time that flesh and blood has not revealed this, but our Father who's in heaven. Now let's read verses 18 through 20 again. And I tell you, Jesus speaking, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So with divine assistance, Peter was able to tell Jesus who he is. Because the Lord had revealed to him, because the Father had revealed to him the identity of Christ, he was able to answer Christ's question correctly. And Jesus responded to Peter by telling Peter who he is and what he's going to do with him. Right? It just parallel tracks there. Peter tells Jesus who Jesus is. Jesus responds by telling Peter who Peter is in light of that confession. Jesus is the Son of Man. With all that we learned that means. Global sovereignty, kingdom conquering authority, dominion taking. He's got all authority and dominion that are given to him. And what does this text show us that Jesus does with all of his authority and dominion as the Son of Man? What does he do with it? How does he use it? Well, he shares it with his people. Starting with Peter. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one with all of the authority. And here's what I'm going to do with it. Peter... I'm going to build my church on you. Here are the keys to the kingdom. What does he do with his authority except vest it into Peter, into the apostles? You see, because of who Jesus is, Peter gets to be somebody. (laughs) That's the idea. Because of who Jesus is, Peter gets to be somebody. Jesus uses his status to to confer a higher status onto us. And think about who Jesus is talking to. You know, Peter gets made fun of a lot by pastors and Bible teachers, and and for pretty good reason. But Jesus is looking at screw-up Peter. That's who he says this to. And just to put that in context, we're talking about the Peter that Jesus is about to call Satan in a few chapters. Get behind me, Satan. He's talking to that guy. He's talking to the Peter who is about to deny him three times. The third of which, I believe it's John's Gospel, tells us that Jesus is making eye contact with Peter while Peter denies him. We're talking about that Peter. We're talking about the Peter who is foolhardy and half-cocked. He looks at that guy and he says, I'm building my church on you. Here are the keys to the kingdom. Now, in applying this to us, I don't want to generalize the text too much. There is a uniqueness to this passage. There's a unique aspect 
to this call that is specific to Peter and to the 12 apostles. And we learn that in Ephesians, because Ephesians tells us that the 12 apostles are uniquely a foundation upon which the church sits. And so I'm not trying to rob this passage of all of its specificity to Peter and the 12 apostles. But there is in this scene, though specific to Peter and the Twelve, a warm and comforting truth for peons like you and like me. And here's the warm and comforting truth. It's the truth that Peter is a peon too. That's the warm and comforting truth that emerges through all of the specificity that applies to them. It's the fact that Peter is as you and I are. And the Lord Jesus selects him for this anyway. Many of you know that there's a wordplay here with Peter's name that Jesus is employing. He, he says Peter's name, Petros, and then he says the statement, On this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now, Petros, Peter's name, refers to a small stone that you'd hold in your hand, something like a pebble. It, it, it's a small rock. That's what Peter's name means. But, but the word that he uses when he says, on this rock I will build my church, Petra refers to a cliff or a ledge or a large foundation stone. So here's what Jesus is actually saying to Peter. He's saying, Peter, you're a pebble, but I'm going to use you as the foundation of a palace that's fit for a king. That's what he's saying. Peter, you're absolutely a pebble, and yet... In my hands and under my authority and with my spirit in you, you will be the foundation of a palace, despite being a pebble, that will be inhabited by the king that you just identified me to be, namely the Christ. But here's the primary reason that I can apply this text to you and to me, despite the fact that there is a unique sense, an apostolic sense, in which the Lord Jesus is speaking to Peter in the 12. The reason I can apply it to you and to me, is because the same Peter to whom our Lord said these things later says this to all believers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and following. Here's what Peter says to every other believer. As you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do, do you hear how Peter just passes on Jesus' words to him, to us? All of the elements. He includes in his statement to the churches to whom he writes later. Jesus says to Peter, you're a rock on whom I'm going to build my church. And then Peter, speaking to us, says, you're all living stones, you're all rocks, and you're being built into this wonderful structure that God himself will inhabit. You see how he takes what Peter said to him, or what Jesus said to him, and he says it to us. He even matches Jesus' exclamation of blessing. After declaring all of those things to Peter, what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And in the same fashion, Peter, after declaring that we too are stones in this building, then says this, 
He says this wonder comes from God as a gift of his mercy and grace. In the same way that I was made a foundation stone, so you and I are made stones in one and the same structure that we are presently being built into. So as it was for Peter, so it is for us. The Lord has called and chosen us for more than we are capable or worthy of. It's true. Husband, you have a high and holy calling and you can't live up to it. Wife, you have a sacred and sanctified position that you're not fit to fill. Christian man or woman in general, you have an election and an enlistment into an army of saints that's on a mission to conquer the world under the authority of the Son of Man. And it's a mission for which all of us is too small, as Peter was when he was commissioned into his office. We're all pebbles, as Peter was. But the Lord is constructing us into a palace that is fit for a king anyway. One more observation as we close this morning. The kingdom of God has been the driving theme throughout Matthew's gospel, at least throughout Jesus' teaching ministry in Matthew's gospel. And that motif actually began really with John the Baptist, because John the Baptist came, and what was the message in his mouth? It was repent for what's near, what's at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is by like chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel. We're talking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why you need to repent, because the king is coming, and you don't want to be found disobedient when the king gets there, because bad things can happen. And then Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5, what's he doing except telling us how to live in the kingdom? It's a long sermon about kingdom living. Here's how the kingdom functions and how you should orient yourself within it. And then, what's his next segment of teaching? Well, it's a, a lengthy list of parables that are all about what? The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. This is the primary motif of Jesus' teaching throughout Matthew's gospel. Now, that kind of gives us an expectation by the time we get to this very pivotal section of Matthew's gospel, because everything that Jesus has said and taught has been laser-focused on the kingdom, such that we would think that at this pivotal moment, when he's finally identified rightly as the king of the kingdom, right? He's been talking about this kingdom, talking about this kingdom, and then he says to his disciples, who am I? Well, you're the king. You're the one who's been anointed as the king of this kingdom that you've been talking about the whole time. And, and of course, they're right. Identification made, check mark, gold star. You've got the answer correct. And we would think that on the heels of that, Jesus would say, now that you've identified that correctly, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my kingdom. Right? Wouldn't that be the logically consistent thing for Jesus to say? The gospel opens with the kingdom. The kingdom permeates the middle. The, permeate, permeate, the, the, the kingdom permeates all of Jesus' teaching and points of emphasis. And now here's the king of the kingdom finally identified as such. I'm going to build my... And he says church. He says church. Well, this teaches us then something about the relationship of the church to the kingdom. It teaches us about the relationship of the church to the kingdom. See, this tells us that the church is effectively the military arm of Christ's kingdom, against which the gates of hell will not prevail. 
The church is the institution by which that kingdom will be fully installed. This isn't Jesus switching gears. He's like, I'm not talking about the kingdom anymore. I'm just talking about the church now. No, because he sets the church in the middle of a conquest, doesn't he? Well, then we're back to kingdom language, aren't we? Because what do kingdoms do? Well, they do what the Son of Man does. What's the Son of Man do? Daniel chapter 7, he takes over the world. And how does Jesus mean to do it? Apparently, based on these verses, he means to do it through you and through me, through this gathering of believers, through the church, down through the ages. The church being, if you will, the armed forces of the kingdom of God. And we will win. And we will win. And our victory comes through simple obedience in everyday life, which builds a solid foundation of faithfulness upon which the next generation will continue to build. That's how this entire thing moves forward. As we live faithfully honoring the Lord Jesus as His church. And that simple obedience, week in, week out, Sunday after Sunday, homeschool lesson after homeschool lesson, witnessing opportunity after witnessing opportunity, raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, all of these things effectively coalesce together to be the affront that Jesus has against the powers of darkness. And he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We win. We take it. It's ours. What a word. That pebbles like us will be built into a palace fit for a king. Let's pray. Father God, you are, you are doing these things. I know we hear this language and it sounds so grand, especially when it's, when it's preached, you know, and somebody's kind of dolled up the language and, you know, used alliteration and said it in pithy pastoral ways. And it's like, oh, that's so grand. That's so wonderful. That's so great. And then you go to change a poopy diaper. It's like, wait, hold on. How's this related to that? I thought we were, thought we were doing like palace stuff. I thought we were doing important stuff. But in your kindness and your wisdom, you said, no, I, I want you to do pebble stuff. Because pebble stuff actually is palace stuff. Would you help us to see it? What we do in our homes, what we do at the workplace, what we do in the neighborhood, what we do in all of these realms is directly related to your kingdom and its advancement. Because that's the kind of king that you are. You're the kind of king that invades all of those spaces. Because as we learned in Daniel chapter 7, you want it all. It means Monday morning when the kids are being squirrely. That's yours. You want to exercise dominion over that. And as that little bit of our life gets turned over to the dominion of the Lord Jesus, then his dominion grows to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing until our entire lives and families are taken over. And then it spills over out of our life and family to the neighbor's life and family and out of their life and family to the next. And this whole thing grows like leaven working its way through a batch of dough. Unimpressively, for sure, but truly. So, Father God, would you encourage us with this word? Would you bring it back to our remembrance even tomorrow morning as we go about our business as pebbles? And we trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.